Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. My name is Hannah Churchill. I'm the Research Communications Manager at Alzheimer's Society, and I'm delighted to be guest hosting this podcast for the Dementia Researcher website today. So thank you to Adam for letting me loose on this. Um, today, we're joined by Claire Pentecost from the University of Exeter, Remco Tout and Nurea Capelli from the University College London, all Alzheimer's Society funded researchers. We'll be discussing the impact of the pandemic has had on their work, how they're rising to the challenge and adapting their research programs to understand the impact on people affected by dementia and provide evidence-based support and guidance. Alzheimer's society itself has been um, badly affected by the pandemic as well, so we'll be touching on the impact that's had for our research program and um, our commitment going forwards. So as we're all aware, um, we know that people with dementia have been hit badly by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over a quarter of people who've died with COVID-19 from March to June had dementia. That's over 13,000 deaths. The largest increase in excess non-COVID-19 deaths was also people with dementia. And those living through the crisis, the effects of social isolation have been, have been severe for both those with the condition and their carers. Alzheimer's Society has been supporting dementia research for decades now, taking on dementia from all angles, seeking to understand the underlying causes of different types of dementia, looking to develop new treatments and understanding how well it, how it can be prevented. Alongside this, Alzheimer's Society is also the UK's biggest charitable funder of dementia care research, which we're going to be taking a, a look at today. Um, alongside the um, Economic and Social Care Research Council and the National Institute of Health Research, we held the first Dementia Care Research Summit earlier this year. Um, and we're seeking, sort of seeking to raise the profile of this area of really important research. And the current pandemic has demonstrated the challenges associated with dementia care and the immediate need for focus and greater investment in this important area. So without further ado, um, let's meet our guests for today, um, who are going to talk a bit about their work, how it's been affected by the pandemic and um, how they are adapting to consider both the pandemic and dementia in their work as we go forwards. Um, so it'd be great if um, we could each introduce ourselves. Shall we start with, um, let's start with Claire. My name is Claire Pentecost. I work um, at the University of Exeter uh, within um, the REACH programme of work, which is all about um, uh, dementia and um, understanding how we can best support people with dementia. And that's headed by um, Professor Linda Clare. So um, I work on Ideal 2. So Ideal 2 is funded by the Alzheimer's Society. And it's a, a large project, um, including six, six different aspects of work to try to understand how we can help and support people uh, to live well with dementia. So it's understanding what living well with dementia is for people um, and their care, people with dementia and their carers and guidance, trying to provide guidance and support um, using that, that information and that data. So the different aspects, um, which I might, I might go into a bit later on perhaps, but yeah, that my job is the programme manager. So I sort of help coordinate all the different work streams. Wonderful. Thanks, Claire. Um, okay, let's, uh, Nurea, would you like to introduce yourself and your, sort of your focus of your research? Thanks, Hannah. As Hannah said, I'm Nurea Capelli and I'm a senior research fellow and an Alzheimer's Society funded fellow based at the Marie Curie Palliative Care Research Department at UCL. Um, I was given some funding by the Alzheimer's Society to do a fellowship looking at family carers' experience of compassion. 
Um, and that's when we talk about compassion, we're talking about compassion, not just for the self, but also for others. And my fellowship also involves developing a compassion-based intervention for family carers. So we know obviously that caring can be so difficult and despite the best that they do, family carers can still experience and report experiencing quite difficult sort of self-critical thoughts about how well they're doing. So I want to tap into new ways of developing interventions that can help manage, help carers to manage sort of difficult emotions that arise as a result of caring. So my work will involves developing a tool to measure what we think compassion might mean to family carers and then working with family carers to develop a compassion-based intervention. Wonderful. That's so nicely into the ideal work as well. Um, okay, and our, our last guest, Remco. My name is Remco Tout, and I'm a PhD student at University College London as well. Um, I'm funded by the Alzheimer's Society through one of the Centres for Excellence, which is actually based in Newcastle, the Pridem Centre for Excellence, which is looking at post-diagnostic care for people with dementia. So once they have a diagnosis, how can we support them? And um, specifically, my interest is looking at how uh, access to healthcare um, is managed in, uh, with people with dementia, as well as their carers, as well as their healthcare professionals. Um, so I'm taking a qualitative approach by doing interviews uh, with people with dementia, the carers they identify, the family carers, and the healthcare professionals that they see as important to uh, their dementia care, um, and using that to really identify the different perspectives that they each have and bring um, to the post-diagnostic care that people are currently receiving as well as what they would like. We've seen sort of recently, and there's been, I mean, this is, we've known for a long time, but the importance of sort of the holistic approach and the different elements of the care ecosystem, um, the importance of those different elements and the impacts that those different elements have felt during the pandemic, a really interesting area to explore. Okay, so um, like we've, we've mentioned already, we know that dementia research has been hit very hard by the pandemic. We actually surveyed all of our researchers um, earlier in the, in the pandemic, I think it was in July, and many of them told us their work had been disrupted and delayed during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, so just reflecting on that, um, how have your areas of work been impacted and have you um, have there been areas that you have been able to continue on your, of your original plan, planned work? Um, and then maybe we'll, we'll go on to talk a bit more about this sort of COVID elements of your work um, in a minute. Um, let's start with uh, Nureo, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, so just before the pandemic, I was in the process of developing a tool. So my work, my fellowship consists of five work streams and the first three aimed to develop a tool um, following some qualitative methods using focus groups and qualitative interviews. So just before the pandemic, I was in the process of developing that. And what I was planning on doing was doing a large survey study with family carers to test the tool and to better understand what compassion means for them. Obviously, because of the pandemic, ethics committees uh, sort of put a halt on um, approving amendments and prioritising more COVID-related studies. And in addition to that, NHS sites have not been open for recruitment, which has meant that basically my study has been put on hold until I can get back into the NHS sites to start recruitment. I've been in touch with obviously various NHS sites who are just all saying that it's probably not going to likely to start back up until the new year. Um, so although I haven't been able to conduct this particular study, I have done some other COVID-related research, which I can talk about later. Great, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, Remco, what about your, your area of work? How have you been affected? Um, so my uh, research method is doing interviews, and uh, I'm primarily interested in people that are currently living in the community. 
Um, so my interviews would have been conducted in their houses. Obviously, mm. that is not feasible at all during the, the pandemic, as well as uh, with regards to just the risk of um, bringing about contamination in general and uh, other issues with that. So my uh, research study received ethical approval earlier in the year before the lockdown and everything else related to that came into place. Um, so I had a study that was approved but didn't have any means of recruiting anyone because we couldn't um, feasibly do any interviews face to face. Um, so in order to uh, to adapt to that really we uh, submitted an amendment to uh, focus on COVID related elements as well um, so that we could see if we could do telephone interviews and reach out to people remotely um, which was a bit of a new area for myself as well as my supervisors because doing telephone interviews without previously establishing contact with someone can be quite difficult. Um, but I can, I can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but yeah, so in, in that sense, um, planning to speak to people face to face um, was obviously just directly off the table as soon as uh, we got an idea yeah. of how, how much impact this really had, yeah. Yeah, huge problem. And Kaleo, the ideal team, obviously a huge team and lots of different areas of work. So um, yeah, how, how has that been for your team? Yeah, um, well, it was a little bit scary at the beginning um, for everyone because uh, obviously we had to rethink uh, a, a few things um, similar to uh, yeah, the uh, speakers. There, you know, obviously issues in um, contacting people and then and then uh, recruiting them into to do research. So uh, one of the big elements of Ideal is a, a longitudinal study, which is um, over seven years collecting data from people with dementia and their carers to look at their trajectories of uh, how they're doing um, regards to their health and their well-being and their feelings about um, how they're getting on. And um, we were collecting um, some data, time point four and time point five, over, uh, um, um, basically had to, had to stop um, in March. So we were sort of uh, midway through time point five, but a lot of people hadn't yet been contacted or, or seen. So uh, unfortunately, that had to just end because the so the, we have research uh, nurses going out um, across the whole country. So we've got twenty nine research sites across the whole country, um, seeing our people. We've got we had a total um, of a um, thousand five hundred and forty seven people in the original um, time one. Um, so obviously, we're trying to follow these people up as time goes on. So that had to stop, but. Um, what we, we we did manage to collect some bits of data um, by post. Some some of those things came in, and we did have to we did make some amendment changes so that we could collect some consent over the phone for some to tie some loose ends up. But um, primarily, um, that piece of work had been has been delayed. So we've made mm -hmm. other changes to the work, uh, you know, specifically some COVID related work to try to mitigate some of those risks. And also, luckily, with there are other work streams that we're doing, which are sort of more desk-based, so we can continue with those things, switch into that mode a bit more. Um, mm. So writing things up and looking at our previous data, which luckily we could continue with. So um, yeah. that was the initial change. But since then, the COVID stuff, this COVID research, luckily has been able to take off, which is, which is, which is great, because we can still ask relevant questions. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a bit of a shock to the system, to everybody in March, just really things grinding to a halt. Yeah. But on the bright side of things, um, nearly 50% of our researchers told us that they were also carrying on um, research focused on uh, dementia and COVID as well. So we know lots of our researchers, including our guests today, um, have been instrumental in recognising the impact of the pandemic on people affected by dementia and adapting their work to investigate this, this impact. Of course, we can't make any changes or... Um, inform any policymakers of issues without carrying out this work and understanding exactly what's going on, the impact it's having and providing evidence-based support and guidance for people who've been worst hit, like those living with dementia. So um, this is really what I was uh, looking forward to talking about today, is finding a bit more about how your programmes of work are, are, are considering the impacts of COVID and uh, on people affected by dementia um, and any out, outputs and observations you've made so far. Um, you know, what, what have your impressions been of, of people's experience of, of um, the pandemic and lockdown so far? Um, it'd be really fantastic if you could um, share anything you have on that as well. Um, so, um, should, should we start with, um, let's go to, to Remco, are you happy to talk a little bit about how you, you've been adapting your work and considering COVID and dementia? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that. So, um, obviously back in March when we heard about the full lockdown and uh, we wouldn't be able to really go out, um, the idea of switching to remote interviews was something that we, uh, we focused on and tried to uh, figure out the best way of doing that in order to make sure that people with dementia and their carers could still be a part of research at this time. Um, once we'd figured that out and, and got the necessary approvals, uh, we started recruiting mostly online, which was something that was um, more new to me. But um, at that point, uh, the Joint Dementia Research Register came in quite handy, which is a national register, which is funded by the Alzheimer's Society, I believe. Um, yeah, we're part, yeah, we're a partner in that. Yeah. Partner in that, which um, uh, allows people with dementia to register their interest to take part in uh, research that's being conducted and so um, being able to contact people to see if they're interested through the dementia research register was something that um, was, was crucial at the beginning as well as the Alzheimer's Society Research Network um, where I um, circulated uh, the appeal to see if people would be interested in taking part in a telephone interview. Um, so over the course of the, the last couple months I've been able to interview the people, the number of people I've been interested in which is about 30 people with dementia as well as their carers. Um, we've made the decision to not contact the healthcare professionals that we were originally planning on including at the first time point because that's where um, obviously uh, the management of, of COVID for healthcare professionals, whether they're GPs or, or memory nurses or other specialists, um, mm -hmm. needed to be prioritised so we didn't want to put additional burden on them. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in the first time point, we were able to do uh, a number of interviews with, with the people with dementia and their carers, which was very interesting to hear about how they've been managing and where my initial interest was on how they were engaging with, with healthcare in general, that now became how have you been engaging with healthcare uh, during the pandemic. So whether that be remotely, whether that be making the decision to go in in person somewhere and what kind of um, uh, what factors into making those decisions. So especially in the early stages, um, we heard a lot about people who would refrain from going to any kind of healthcare encounters. So a lot was postponed, obviously, um, but a lot of people who might need emergency care decided not to engage with that because they were afraid of the risk of COVID. Um, as things progressed, people started uh, receiving more and more remote um, healthcare, so telephone calls or electronic consults from their uh, primary healthcare practitioners or other um, members of the, the uh, healthcare team that might be in contact with them and discussing with them really what's been important to make those encounters um, uh, work well for people with dementia in their carers as well as 
um, not just in general with the provision of care, but also with um, uh, managing that as, as a family member, as a person with dementia and discussing that together or separately uh, in some cases as well. So that's been very interesting to now sort of bring that to light as well. And as we go forward um, and think about the remote provision during the rest of the pandemic or just in general where we think we might uh, adapt to healthcare systems, um, it's going to be increasingly important to, to monitor that as well and to see what kind of experiences mm -hmm. develop later on. So uh, we're lucky that we are able to do secondary interviews to follow up and see what's changed since then, really, um, yeah, and how brilliant. people have managed since then. And what has your impression been of people moving to a more virtual uh, healthcare approach? Has it been received well? It's obviously been a necessity at this point, but mm -hmm. um, do you, does it feel like it's something that could continue into the future and is something that's viable? Well, I think there's always been this idea that um, pushing towards more remote provision would free up time for certain practitioners. So that's definitely been on the agenda for a while and COVID sort of moved that up in a lot of places where that's something that we've seen throughout different healthcare systems. Um, and it's important that when, when we move forward with that, that we still think about the people who might have difficulty accessing those kinds of care. Um, and that is what we are seeing that people with dementia and their carers uh, are finding that difficult in some ways. But um, uh, it'll be interesting to see as they maybe get more used to it over time or if they could uh, consistently uh, see difficulties in engaging with that. Obviously during the COVID pandemic there was a huge shift all of a sudden in one go and mm -hmm. so um, the fact that we'll be able to speak to people again and see if they're facing the same issues or managing to find strategies for that is something that we'll then be able to communicate out and um, plan for because that's something where we do see that people who have uh, where the family carer is, is a child for example they're much more comfortable in engaging with remote health care whereas if it's a spouse who might be helping the yeah. person with dementia they're finding it increasingly difficult and um, not just for the care for the person with dementia but also their own care on top of that as well um, mm -hmm. so that's definitely something that um, we're looking into to, to continue and follow up on that to see what kind of experiences and what kind of strategies people are developing um, because yeah. overall there's definitely a preference for face-to-face -face care but there is an understanding that that's currently not possible yeah um, it's a reflection of this you know as we've known always with dementia the importance of person-centered and individual mm -hmm. individualized care brilliant thank you Remka. That's, that's fantastic to hear um let's go to Nureo. let's um i know that you you mentioned that quite a lot of your Alzheimer's society funded work has been um been on hold um but it would be fantastic to hear a bit about your covid area of work as well yeah. So, as, yeah, as I said earlier, I, I was unfortunately unable to adapt my fellowship work to sort of fit around COVID. But what in the meantime, what we have done, so myself and Dr. Nathan Davis, also based at UCL, we were awarded an Economic and Social Research Council and UK Research Innovation Grant to study the challenges family carers and people living with dementia experience during the pandemic and the sorts of decisions they've had to make. So we obviously, obviously, we know that family carers have to make difficult decisions all the time. But this has been made even more difficult with the pandemic because a lot of people are unable to visit their family and the people they're caring for, you know, obviously with all the stories in the media about care homes. Um, and so they're having to make remote decisions without seeing the person they're caring for. And also sometimes making decisions with a health professional that they possibly may have never met before, um, which obviously can be quite distressing. So through this work what we did is we worked with the Alzheimer's Society and Marie Curie and Dementia UK and we use various ways of under trying to understand this obviously like Remco and Claire we're not able to do any sort of face-to-face -face, um, research but what we did is we looked at 
the Azam Society online community to, to get a better understanding of what sort of challenges and concerns that family carers were reporting. Um, we also spoke to helpline staff at Marie Curie and Dementia UK, again, to find out what are people calling the helplines about. And actually one of the things that we come away with is ever since the pandemic, more and more people like Ramco saying is those who are able to use virtual means of support, they are seeking support in different ways. So although they might not be able to see their GP or other healthcare professionals, what they're doing is they are resorting to online communities to get support from other, from other carers um, and also using support helplines that say people like, you know, the Amazon Society and Marie Curie and Dementia UK offer. And um, so what we found was that they, a lot of the sort of decisions that people were making, we focus much more at the end of life and some of the difficult decisions that are usually made around the end of life. So this included things like whether or not someone should go to hospital if they become unwell, um, what it means to do a, um, a DNAR, resuscitation order. Um, and what we've done is we've basically used all the information that we've gathered through all these different sources, and we've developed a guide to help carers make these difficult decisions. And what it does is it takes into consideration the wishes and the preferences of the person living with dementia and whether or not they've made things like advanced care plans. We also, through this guide, we also provide tips for carers such as, you know, some of the COVID-19 symptoms to watch out for, because what we know is actually that people living with dementia may not present the usual sort of symptoms that have been sort of promoted through the media. Um, so what we've done is we've tried to help family carers become much more informed about what to look out for and then to make more informed decisions. Um, so the guide is actually available. It's available on the UCL website and we really hope that it's obviously useful for carers, especially if there is a second wave. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sharing that on the Outside Society website. Actually, I think it may already be up there. Um, just following up on that. So we're um, just, I'm sure there were a whole swathe of different um, issues that people were, were concerned about, but were there any sort of, what were the, the sort of top three standout issues that you felt people were, were, were concerned about um, at caring for their loved ones or living with dementia at the moment? Yeah, uh, we found things like whether or not I should let some like an, a healthcare professional or a carer from outside come in and care for the person I'm caring for. Um, the other one that we found that was quite, um, it sounds quite distressing, uh, is where there are not people making decisions whether or not there's someone in a care home during the pandemic. So obviously if somebody has been hospitalised and they've become quite poorly and can no longer live on their own independently, do I, do I make the decision to then move them into a care home? And then the other thing that's coming up quite a bit is about whether or not I should be visiting them. And if I do visit them, how do I visit them? And, how, and if I can't visit them, what sort of things can I do to make sure that they know that I'm there? Um, mm. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been a range of challenges and concerns, but they're probably the main three that have come out of our work. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, campaigning and influencing work on the, the Alzheimer's Society have been doing around access and visitation for um, for residents in care homes and the challenges around that, but ensuring that we can do that in a safe and in a safe way. Um, we know that isolation has sort of been um, a good thing for lots of people living with dementia. Um, thanks, Nuria, that's fantastic. Um, and moving on to Claire and the Ideal Project. Um, I know there's been a huge amount going on and uh, we've already touched on this, you adapting to consider the impact of COVID and um, the effect that will have on living well as well. Um, mm. So it'd be fantastic to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, um, so uh, initially obviously we had to get, um, well, we had a meetings, emergency meetings with our project advisory group 
and our um, PPI group, our patient and involvement group, to think about what we could do in response to um, the COVID pandemic. Um, we were hearing, um, we like um, like Nuria, we used the uh, some of the networks to try and think about what was happening in the community and how people were coping or not coping. And we heard that people were uh, initially, um, there's a lot of panic and feelings of abandonment um, and people didn't really have very much information. Uh, and then people started to see um, that, you know, there was some, some gradual understanding about um, how, you know, the life would go on and, um, and that, you know, some adapt adaptations could be made to people's lives. So we heard that from the networks. And we also had some evidence based on what we'd already collected from IDEA about what we understood um, was uh, important for people to live well. We, what we wanted to do is try to put together um, some guidance and support quite quickly based on what we knew and, and using our, our, our colleagues and our networks to try to pull together some useful guidance which would be quick and rapid because we heard that, the, that there was lack of information and cohesive information and it was confusing. So there was one point of, of call. So we put together some leaflets and they went onto uh, a website um, our include project website so we got funding to do that and um, we worked with the department of health and social care and the Alzheimer's society to think about what was what was needed and since then the um it's like five points of you know what, what you need to look out for to help help yourself um, and uh, we've updated that based on some of the feedback that we've got and some of the changes that people have experienced and they've also been translated so um, you know obviously there's a wider um number of people that can access those too. So that was the first thing that we did. Um, so we got, like I say, we've got some funding to do that. And in addition to that piece of work, so this funding came from um, the um, ESRC uh, and um, it, it, it was a basically a, a dementia initiative agreed with the Department of Health and Social Care and sorry, funded by the NIHR, not the ESRC, that was the next, the next bit. Um, and basically the other thing we wanted to do was to interview people um, with um, dementia so we could go to the people who were already participants in include who were part of the longitudinal study approach them and just you know ask as many people as we could to agree to an interview um, to ask them in depth what what issues they were facing um, the problems that they uh, they had but also the things that they were doing to help them cope and also um, where there were gaps in services and what services they they needed and they weren't getting um, and also the positive things that were coming out of it, if anything, you know, the, the positive changes. So we're just looking at those interviews now uh, and we're just trying to uh, consider what, what it all means. Uh, and, and the good thing is that we did manage to get, you know, quite a few people really interested in talking. They, you know, they're interested in um, telling us their experiences and actually doing interviews over the phone with people with dementia. We thought that might be an issue or difficult. We had to get consent over the phone and that kind of thing. But... Uh, the ethical approval process has been changed, so that has made things quite a lot easier. Um, so um, we managed to get 22 interviews. That was a um, roughly split between people with dementia and their carers. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we found some interesting things. So there was, we found that there were quite an interesting split between the levels of coping amongst people. So for some people doing really well, uh, you know, actually, you know, quite happy. Um, others that are doing not so well and, and some people that are doing you know, quite badly. Um, um, but of course, a lot of people were suffering from isolation and obviously the access to services had stopped. 
and people were starting to feel stressed and anxious in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, the issues that people were facing, uh, you know, the people that were, were doing less well, some of them, had, their dementia had pro progressed and they were having difficulties with their memory or their communication, for example. Um, so there's definitely there's some uh, dementia-specific impacts on people, which are over and above the normal things that general, the general population have experienced, which has obviously been very stressful for people. Um, but interestingly, we didn't see a difference in levels of coping um, according to people's type or stage of dementia or their age. So that was quite, um, in some ways, that was quite um, reassuring because it really it was about other things. Um, people sort of finding difficulties for other reasons or people doing well for other reasons. So one of the, one of the big things was about living alone. People that were living alone were doing less well generally. Um, and so people who had access to support or had someone to help them, uh, you'd, you, of course, you could imagine that, um, that that would be more difficult if you're on your own and dealing with, um, you know, memory issues, especially if the services had stopped, you weren't getting in, your carer coming in to help you do your necessary things. Um, we did also, um, on, on top of this, we also were able to re-invite some of the people back for some interviews. So we're interested to know what their changes over time might be. So for the ones that weren't doing so well, we're interested in what happened. Uh, so we interviewed those people. And we also did do uh, some interviews with people from black and ethnic minority groups as well. Um, we had one person in the original group, um, which is actually fairly representative of the numbers of people that we see diagnosed with dementia um, in, the, in the community from black and ethnic minority groups. We wanted to do a few more to see uh, if there are other issues that we needed to think about. So generally, the people from black and ethnic minority groups were very similar in lots of ways, same, same sorts of issues. Um, but there does appear to be some um, problems of trust. So trusting the information, trusting the care they might receive. Um, and so, you know, we're looking into that a bit more to see how we may be able to address that in how the information is presented, who, who presents the information, what the content of the information needs to be so that more people can engage with it. Um, because obviously it's important that people are informed um, and know how to stay safe, essentially. Um, and in terms of the follow-up interviews, um, what we found is, um, of course, with the progression of the disease, at the beginning when we did the interviews, it was fairly early on, uh, around April, April, May time. And the second lot of interviews were a couple of months after that. So there were some changes in the restrictions. So the, there were some easing of restrictions and people were allowed to go out a bit more. But there, was a, there were two things. There was some anxiety about going out again um, and um, some problems and concerns about the community not being dementia aware and not being uh, supportive mm -hmm. or mindful of someone who might not be remembering the rules or not being able to distance properly. So there's some anxieties about that. And of course, anxieties about catching the you know disease if, if they weren't safe people weren't safe going out uh, but we also found people did improve so as you would expect some people might improve because there was less concern about you know the, the, um, the numbers of people that were ill in the community uh, and some people did change their mindset and think about okay well I can overcome this I can I can move forward I can overcome my fears and go out and enjoy being outside. And, and so it was nice to see that some people, you know, that some of the people that weren't doing so well did, you know, some of them did make some improvements. So obviously you have to, you have to look at people as individuals and, and look at their concerns, their problems and their, their issues that they're having. And ideally we really need to target information according to where they're at at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And 
people can change and move and shift and learn. People did learn um, how to use the internet um, and more and more people were doing that. But of course, as you both said, Remco and um, uh, Nura, um, the importance of face-to-face -face contact is still really valid. And it's how can we incorporate more of that in the future, but in a safe way, but also help support people get online if, you know, obviously there's a wealth of things that can be done online as well. And um, the, the great thing is that people can adapt and learn and um, even people with memory problems and difficulties, it can, can of course they can. Um, so there's some positive stories as well as clearly there being an issue and a, a need to make sure that people with dementia are treated, uh, you know, as a, as a group that, that needs some, some attention. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to hear that, you know, it's been quite a bleak picture um, often. And I think, um, yeah, hearing some of the positive or at least the um, the adaptations that people are being able to make to be able to live well through the pandemic is really nice to hear for a change. Um, but yeah, there's a, I mean, there's so much information coming out of the ideal team and it's really fantastic for feeding into implementing work and it's really high, highlighting some of the priorities that um, we need to, to target to help people affected by dementia at the moment. So um, I know that the guidance leaflets that the ideal team developed have been incredibly well received and it's really fantastic to hear that they're being translated into other um, languages as well to make those yeah. accessible to broader groups. So brilliant to hear. Um, so I, I, this is a question which I haven't, uh, I didn't actually include on when I sent it around to you guys, but I wanted to ask, you touched on um, some of the changes to the ethics committees, some move towards um, making um, perhaps recruitment and uh, some, of, some processes in research um, faster and easier um, to, as a result of the pandemic and sort of this shift that we've been forced to make. Um, have you, have, I'll open this up to, to, all, to you all. Have there been any other sort of silver linings in, that you, in learnings or adaptations that you've seen that you think will be sort of taken forward as we hopefully come out the other side of the pandemic, which will um, support dementia research going forwards? I think um, our approach prior to COVID in um, recruiting people and um, collecting data from them, you know, the ideal program so far, you know, we, there's a, there's a, the, the documents that we use to collect data are, are quite long, actually. So what we do is, you know, we get, see people face to face, we give them opportunity for breaks, uh, it, it takes about two hours and, you know, that, that it's fine, that's been happening. Um, but with the shift uh, and not being able to see people face to face, we did worry that um, it would be very difficult to collect data you know um that type, type of length of time on the phone and how would people cope and how would people cope uh using zoom or these things but it, obviously it's clear that people can and do um are able to uh have interviews so one of the things that we had to do was um we had to take consent over the phone and we were concerned that you know can you get informed consent properly from somebody um making sure that they fully understand what what's been asked of them um, but the answer is yes, uh, and you, know, you have to go through mm. processes and check and, and talk to them and spend a bit of time. But of course, yes, it can be done over the phone. It's, I've done it before over the phone uh, in other populations. So it's, it's, it's nice to know that these things, of course, uh, we, can do, we can do that and we can do it properly and ethically. Mm. Um, and I think that the, um, the ethical committees and the process has been made easier in lots of ways quicker so we were able to get quite a quick response which was 
really nice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In order to get get started on um, the ideal um, the COVID um, initiative, the ideal CDI work, and also a new one which I haven't talked about, but the Include project, which is another um, a way a way of collecting data. But we're going to do that over the phone, but using um, Qualtrics to collect the data rather than using paper forms and things. Um, but but yeah, so the the it seems like uh, there's been a lot of um, um, energy to try and make it work for researchers. There's been a lot of energy mm. put into it to make it um, easy to do, quick to do, and um, but still good, still a good process. Yeah, so that's a nice shift. That's an, hopefully that will stick around because that's that's easier for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, New Year. And, yeah, just sort of echoing what Claire was saying. I mean, we with the COVID grant that we got, we got um, the grant and ethics permissions to do qualitative interviews with helpline support workers and to analyse some of the data from the um, Alzheimer's Society online community. And we did the project and developed the decision guide within four months. And that involved uh -huh. getting together all the PPI um, who helped us basically inform the um, development of the decision guide. We had experts who met up into uh, as a focus group, including um, Tim Beanland from the Alzheimer's Society. So it, I think it's basically like Claire was saying, everybody sort of just came together and just thought mm. it needs a rapid response. And yeah. similarly with the ethics committees, you know, they prioritise a lot of the COVID studies, which meant that, you know, we got ethics within a week. So it's been, yeah. it's been incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's more of that, please. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an exciting, uh, definitely exciting to get something back that quickly. It was like, right, we can get going then, we can get started. And, and it's fantastic. The, the research is needed now. We need to collect this data now because it's happening now. And of course, COVID is changing rapidly. So mm. it was, that was fabulous. Very unexpected. Yeah, let's hold on to that as much as possible. So one last point, um, just because otherwise we'll be talking forever, um, which I could very happily do. Um, I, I have to ask this, um, as Alzheimer's Society Research Commons Manager, um, we've been hit very hard um, by the pandemic and unfortunately, um, as I'm sure all of you are aware, we're, we've paused our research funding programme for this year and um, we've had to adapt a lot of our other services and work as well. Um, and medical research charities anticipate a 40% reduction in research investment this year. Um, so I'd really love to hear just very briefly from each of you, um, your experience of and what you feel, why you feel um, medical research charities like Alzheimer's Society are important, particularly for early career researchers and, um, and if you're, and your sort of concerns in that area. Um, let's start with Nurea just really quickly. Yeah, I mean, getting a fellowship from the Alzheimer's Society was an absolute incredible achievement. It was, I mean, it's not an easy process, but it was an incredible <laughs> opportunity. And the sort of the, the advice and the help that I got from, and the support I got from the Alzheimer's Society has been incredible. I mean, just in a nutshell, it basically allowed me to spread my wings, as they say, and to follow my own interests and passions um, in dementia research. And so I was able to do the things that I wanted to do and take my interests further. So yeah, in that sense, it's been a great opportunity. Yeah, so important for allowing the early career researchers to do that. Um, I don't know if Claire or Remka wanted to add to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
I'm in my final year of my PhD now, so this is really the point where I am starting to think about the, the future career that I can have. And I think the Alzheimer's Society has really created such a great um, uh, environment for dementia research as well, in encouraging it, in supporting it, in funding it, um, but also just trying to, to move the field forward. And I think that's something that um, I've been able to see, not just through my PhD, but also before. And that's something that, that's so exciting and it is, a bit of a shame that there is that worry now with regards to the funding, with regards to what is the future at the moment. And I think that's where um, seeing the Alzheimer's Society coming together and you know um, writing that that letter to um, the the, uh, the governments, you know, asking them specifically to to continue this funding to make sure that we can continue doing that. Um, to me, as an early career researcher, it just means a lot as well. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely, our pleasure. We fully appreciate how important our early career researchers are and you know we need to safeguard the net the future of dementia research and make sure that we continue to support that and um at this stage we fully anticipate being able to continue our research funding next year um it's obviously uh, a, a volatile situation um so uh but we hope that will be the case and we're committed to supporting research going forwards mm. so um i just i we'll touch on a couple of things so oh claire yes absolutely yeah um, yeah so um just you know, I, I've uh, come from a different, you know, I, I'm not a, a dementia expert, but I've come from um, other different populations, all, all different things. And this is, this this particular programme of research is a really good question. It's a really sort of important centralised question about how can we help people live well? Uh, you know, it's not to ignore uh, the fact that um, people can live well and do live well and how can we best support that? So it's a really important question. And uh, the Alzheimer's Society, it, it, by funding this, this big program of work, there'll be so much information, or there already is coming out, that is, uh, has been used by the Alzheimer's Society, and the Alzheimer's Society we have a really unique position to be working clear, uh, closely with the uh, Alzheimer's Society in their, um, thinking about policy and impact for the future. And so uh, we're guided by what's, what's current, what's happening, and how can we best put our findings into practice, um, but also to be guided about the most important questions uh, in you know some of the current things we're working on to make sure that that is impactful for the future. So that for me is, is extremely exciting. And um, uh, in the current climate, with the certain uncertainties with with funding, we obviously we hope that this 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 work will be finished and completed. Um, but all the way through uh, the Alzheimer's Society, being able to talk to us about what we're doing and how we're doing it, and as I say, how to be impactful as best we can, which uh, is is very encouraging. So obviously, we all hope that. The work can continue and um, you know we're able to put those really important messages out and complete it all uh, in good time um, but if not it might be you know we might extend that time frame and hopefully get it done a bit later on but yeah it's it's good stuff it's all good it's all really good uh, research so uh, everyone you know it's all really useful stuff that have an impact on people and their lives in the future so it's, that's what I'm all about. Absolutely. I think that's the key point, isn't it? You know, we really want to see that translated into into impact for people affected by dementia. And that's that's why we're all here. So, um, yeah, Alzheimer's Society, we're incredibly proud of all our researchers in the way that um, they've adapted and persevered through the pandemic. And we're, as I said before, we're committed to supporting dementia research going forward. Um, you can find out more about Alzheimer's Society by visiting alzheimers.org.uk forward slash for researchers for all the latest news and updates on our research funding programme. Um, it's also memory walks. Season, which is our flagship fundraising event which I would be in trouble with uh, with uh, our team zero if I didn't mention um, so dig out your walking boots and sign up at walk uh, memorywalk.org.uk
Um, I'd like to thank our panellists, Claire Pentecost from Kotel and Nerea um, Capelli for all their time today. Thank you so much for coming along and um, shamelessly supporting Alzheimer's Society. Um, we have profiles of all of, our, of today's panellists on the website, including details of their Twitter handles. Um, if you'd like to ask any follow-up questions or if you have any questions, do reach out. On the Dementia Researcher website, you'll also find a full transcript of this podcast. Uh, finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. <laughs>